when someone loves me, I can tell it by when they go out of their way to try to help me. Because they show it, like, they can't give you food, and that shows you love them. So you can help them, like, say my baby sits a fall, and I will help her up. That's why I help her. Um, when you know how somebody loves you, it's like, um, <clears throat> be like, they might show you, like, a little more, like, um, care than, like, somebody, like, than, like, if someone was your friend. Uh, I think my mom was helping me out, um, when I need help. Um, ways that I know somebody loves me is if they um, care about me, if I'm like struggling with something, or like they try to help me. They take care of me. They help me be better with stuff. So at my school, there was a peppermint village and that's where you get to buy all the stuff for your family members. And I bought a whole bunch of stuff for my family. A whole bunch. A lot. Let's thank our kids for helping us understand what love is. So perfect, a lot, a lot. Love is a word that we use a lot, isn't it? Uh, and so much so that I wonder if it might be good for us to do a little bit of a, or maybe a lot of a bit of a reset on, on just that word. What do we mean when we just say that, say the word with me, say love with me, love, right? What did you feel in that moment? Maybe nothing, right? You know, it's Sunday morning at church, right? But maybe there was a time when you said that word, uh, maybe for the first time, or when you saw your child, or you saw the person that you were falling in love with, and you said that word, and like, it was like a bolt of lightning, right? It's a word that we do use a lot, and we feel different things. We mean different things when we say it. We say we love a lot of things. Uh, some of you love the Kansas City Chiefs. I think we got at least one jersey in here. Some of you love the Philadelphia Eagles. We got maybe a jersey in here. Um, some of us, you know, in the room love the Minnesota Vikings, and we remember love is patient, right? <laughs> some of us love Super Bowl food. We mean lots of different things when we use the word, but even when we use the word like we mean it, and when we use it in a relational context, when we use it in a spiritual context, and we say, I love my family, I love my friends, I love you. When we say, I love God. When we say, I love neighbor. If we're honest, we, we feel different things at different times. When we say that, we mean maybe different things at different times when we say it. Even when we use the word and we, we intend to mean it out of the depths of who we are, there are times, if we're honest, that it doesn't really have that punch. It doesn't really resonate with us. It makes me wonder, can a word like love lose its power simply because we use it so much? There's a word for this. Some of us um, learned it watching Ted Lasso. Uh, the word is semantic satiation. You probably 
you probably did not remember that even if you watched Ted Lasso. Semantic satiation, and this is what Wikipedia says it is. It's described by, a, it's a psychological phenomenon in which repetition causes a word or phrase to temporarily lose meaning for the listener who then perceives the speech as repeated meaningless sounds. So that's a little bit of an overstatement maybe, but could we drift toward that when we use the word love? Can it sort of drift toward just a repeated meaningless sound? What does is, what is Huey Lewis want to tell us about the power of love when we, when we get there? It's thoughts that maybe that the reason we do this is our brains have to kind of keep looking for the new and the novel. That we, if something's new, it catches our attention. But over time, when we hear the same thing or we see the same thing, over time our brain learns, okay, we know what that thing is. We don't have to go on alert. And that in some ways works for us, but maybe it also works against us. This term, uh, semantic satiation, by the way, was uh, first coined <coughs> in 1907. And then there was a psychology uh, doctoral student in the 1960s who did some experiments. A lot of people did experiments in the 60s. But um, this guy was doing an experiment on a cat and simply had this cat who was asleep and they would play a tone and the, the noise woke the cat up. And then they played again and then they played it again and they played it again. And eventually the cat stopped paying attention as cats do, right? But uh, then eventually it stopped waking up. Its brain told it, hey, this is nothing new until they played a different noise and the cat woke up again. Is your soul a bit like the cat? Perhaps. You've heard the word enough. We've used the word enough. Someone said it to you enough that we not only have mixed messages about it, but we most importantly have a toned down message that we're computing in our brains, in our hearts, in our bodies, in our actions. Love maybe doesn't mean what we hope it would mean. So over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the power of love. We're going to focus on the same scripture both weeks. We're going to read it out loud like we did today, 1 Corinthians 13. And um, maybe this is a familiar scripture to you. It's probably as about as familiar as John 3.16, out, out, out and about. You've heard the passage before. Most likely you have uh, heard it at a wedding. And it was read at my wedding. My dad, in fact, was our pastor, and he was not only nervous, but he was just trying to ba balance the dad role and the pastor role as he performed the service. And uh, we read the scripture, and uh, he got to the end and said, um, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves, is what he said. Um, like, you know, strawberry preserves. Always perseveres. You've probably heard it in, in this context, so much so that it kind of plays into the thing that we've already talked about. Yeah, we know what that's about. So in this series, we're gonna go back and forth between two ways of looking at this, and that's the, what you see on the screen, what love is <coughs> and what love isn't. I wanna read 1 Corinthians 13 again. I want you to hear it this time, watching for those, those patterns, for, for a description of what love is and what what love isn't. Love is patient. Love is kind. And then it goes into the isn't part. It isn't, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud. In fact, it stays there. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily ang angered. Now, we pause and say, why are there so many descriptions of what love isn't in there? We're gonna, you have to come back next week to hear that sermon. That's next week's sermon. 
Uh, he keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. So there's an is and an isn't there. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves, always perseveres. Talk about familiar. Uh, and, and so uh, you, kind of, you kind of think about the context that we encounter the scripture and wonder how that relates to the original context. It kind of makes me laugh. Because you can imagine Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's writing about 50 years after Christ, somewhere in that, that range after Christ's birth, into a church that he started in Corinth, has, had spent some time, significant time there, and then had left. When he left, it became clear very quickly that things were already kind of going a little sideways, and they were losing sight of things. So uh, one of the things you can kind of assume about letters in the Bible, uh, the, the, the New Testament letters, most of them are written for a reason, which makes sense, right? If you're going to write, there's a reason to write. And a lot of those letters were written because there was a problem. Now, that's not always the case. Philippians is a good example of a letter that Paul wrote to the Church of Philippi that was much more of a thank you letter. Uh, and Romans uh, was a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he didn't found. And so it's more of a kind of bigger description of his, his way of thinking about Jesus. But a lot of the, the, the letters that Paul wrote to churches that he started was because they needed guidance. So you imagine Paul in that context getting out his pen to write out uh, a letter that starts, uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, starts at the beginning of this letter talking about divisions in the church and how people were aligning under different personalities and we're finding their denomination or the division under that person, person or that leader. And Paul writes and says, hey, that's the, the love of Jesus brings us together. It doesn't pull us apart. And we talked about that even a couple weeks ago, how that dynamic, like that, that push and pull of, of the love of Christ that intends to bring us together. When we say love, what we mean is the boundary-shattering reality-changing love of God that changes every other human relationship. So why are you lining up under different personalities? There's another place in the letter that talks about how socioeconomics are showing themselves in communion. That the, the rich come in and have all, all kinds of things, supplies, we would say uh, elements, for, for a love feast, for a full-on meal much like our Super Bowl after this. Um, but in that meal, some people were eating a lot and some people at the communion meal. The, 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 the meal that reenacts the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, some people had a lot and some people had nothing. And so the, the meal was reinforcing the, 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 the strata of, of, of life on earth instead of rearranging it. Paul said, that's not what we're doing. In the 1 Corinthians 12, gets to how there, there are different gifts within different people. And somehow in the Corinthian church, they were using those gifts as a, a hierarchy or a pecking order so that uh, you, your gifts seem more spiritual, then you must be more spiritual and you must be sort of higher up than other people. And you just sort of get Paul kind of doing the, the head slap. This is, you're just not getting what we mean by love when we say the love of Christ. They're just not getting it. Now imagine... Paul pauses and says, you know what, I'm going to hold on from 1 Corinthians, what they're going to call this 1 Corinthians 12, but what, what does the Bible need? It needs a really good love poem to be used at weddings, right? They're going to love this stuff. They're just going to eat it up. They're going to just go, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to hang in there. That's what the world needs. 
Of course, that's not the context. Though it does apply, we should say, like, it's okay to read this at a wedding. It's okay to apply this kind of stuff to your marriage, especially if you understand, or any of your relationships, in, in fact, especially if you understand the impulse for writing, which I think is this, Paul saying, you're using the word, but you really don't know what it means. That's the problem. Now, if you pause and take a step back, what do you want to guess? Is that sort of our problem, too? That we do the same thing. We use the word, and we use it so much that we all sort of say, yeah, we know what, what that means. And then, in some way, we struggle to embody that in our everyday, ordinary relationships. And that's the key. When we talk about love, what we mean is the love of God embodied in your ordinary relationships. Well, of course we're not going to fully get that. We're going to struggle to live into that. That is our constant problem, to know what we mean by the, the, the simple word and then what it means to live it out, to put that into practice, to find it as the driver of all of our relationships. This is the problem that Paul sees. And so uh, he, he writes to them ab about this very human ability to tone down the radical, the extreme, and the powerful. God's love fits into that, doesn't it? We're all struggling with this. And so, uh, so Paul writes to them uh, to, to help us understand that Christ chose service over status and that he washed uh, the feet of his disciples and ate with sinners and died on a cross so that their definition of love itself would, fi would find its definition in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we come to a passage like 1 Corinthians 13, and we say, okay, um, we need to do better at this, right? Okay, we struggle to love. We're not always loving people. We use the word, and we don't always mean it. So then naturally our first in instinct is to say, okay, let's read the list, and let's do that, okay? Let's find a rubric and says, okay, if lo you know, love is, and we start going down the list, love is patient. P uh, patient literally means long-suffering, by the way. They didn't tell you that at some of your weddings, right? <laughs> love is long-suffering. It's almost like Paul could have stopped there, right? <laughs> long-suffering. Uh, and so we think, okay, love is patient. All right, I need to be more patient. And what we don't say, but what we mean is I'm going to use my willpower. I'm going to muster up my energy, and I'm going to become a patient person. How many of you have, have ever done, sort of done it that way without realizing it? I'm just going to be more patient, right? How did that go? Right? Not, not always... Not always as easy as it sounds. Willpower is, is, is like that. For love is kind, and so uh, I, I notice that I've not been nice, uh, I have not been very nice to s some folks, and I feel convicted about that. So what we do with this scripture, and we, we do with a lot of them, is say, okay, this is the list, of, this is what it looks like, and then we go and try, try to do it. And that's not, that's not all bad, the impulse is good. But I'm gonna, gonna suggest that maybe there's a, there's a problem here, and that that Paul is actually speaking to that problem, which is that um, we and ourselves are not very good at this, and specifically when it comes to our willpower. 
Uh, someone has said that uh, you want to kind of think about the two things that are going on in you. You have your will, and then you have your actual soul. And when we talk about shalom, or we talk about wholeness, we're talking about spirituality in general. What we're really talking about is your, your soul. And so the metaphor is that your willpower is like a rider, like um, a, a jockey, on top of your soul, your passions, your desires, which is like an elephant. And so you can imagine a little, little guy up on an elephant, your willpower is trying to steer you wherever you're going to go. And that works for a while, but you can kind of get the, 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 the elephant to, to move. You can kind of coerce it. But eventually what happens is if the elephant decides to go left and you want to go right, where's the elephant going to go, right? Someone said the easiest way to lead a camel, to use another metaphor, uh, the easiest way to lead a camel is to, to go the direction it wants to go anyway. And your willpower is kind of like that. You can be strong for a while, but eventually uh, it will not hold up. I was recently uh, on a Zoom call, with a com had a conversation with some folks that I don't agree with. And um, we're in a space where we're, I'm tr I tr I'm trying, we're trying to do those kinds of conversations within the church uh, to, to show love to one another. And so I, I did the, the thing that I just said not to do. I said, okay, I'm going to be patient in this, phone, this Zoom call. We're going to spend an hour, and we're gonna, there's going to be some tension, and we're going to talk about some things that we disagree about, but I'm going to be very patient. And what I discovered is that I can do that for 50 minutes. But at 51, it, it's not like it goes away just a little bit. It's like it's, it's all used up. It's gone, right? And that's how willpower works. We muster it up for as long as we can, and it's good until it's not until it's gone. And so it is with trying to be patient or trying to be kind. We grit our teeth and we work really hard. And we try to make ourselves more loving people. And at some point we ask, how is that working for us? Can you make yourself love something? Maybe some of you have tried. Maybe it was Brussels sprouts or Sardines or Duke basketball. You, the, it's, you tried, but it didn't work. It's because we don't have enough willpower to make ourselves the kind of people that God intends us to be. And the truth of the matter is, it takes being loved to be able to love. It takes an expansion of our actual soul, not just the rider on top of it steering it, but down deep to the core of who we are, honest to goodness who I am, my, my soul. It takes something that affects that, not just what's steering it. And of course, this is church, so the answer to, to every question is somehow Jesus, right? But this is what we mean when we talk about love. We talk about the kind of love that can go to the core of who we are and begin to change us from the inside out so that we love because we are loved. And that sounds so simple. But one way of thinking about this passage and really about the word itself is that when we say the word love, what we really mean is Jesus. So let's do a little experiment. I'm gonna have you close your eyes, which is a dangerous thing to do halfway through this, two thirds of the way through the sermon. But I want you to uh, close your eyes and to, to, to envision with me some picture of the life of Christ. And it might be Jesus, as we said earlier, washing his disciples' feet on the very night that he would be betrayed. Or it might be a picture of Jesus at the table laughing 
with uh, people that other people wouldn't even sit with. It might be Jesus, a picture of Jesus in the passion of, of Christ. Perhaps even Jesus on the cross. And as those images flash through your mind, I want to read the scripture again. Only in the place where it says love, we're going to use the name of Jesus in some way or another. Jesus is patient. Jesus is long-suffering and kind. Christ doesn't envy. Christ doesn't boast. He's not proud. Jesus didn't dishonor others. He wasn't here to be self-seeking. He wasn't easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. He doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And in that, he always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. The good news of the gospel, you can open your eyes and don't fall asleep. You, you, the good news of the gospel is the love that we're talking about has already been offered. It's already been given. It's not something we have to drum up. It is something we have to discover and experience ourselves. The good news is that we get to experience this ourselves and then become conduits of it, love, loved people, loving people. There is an aspect of each of our lives in which we have thought we knew what love was and it needs to be corrected. Some of us more extreme than others. Some of us were raised without a real clear understanding of, of what that word meant when it was told to us. All of us, in some way or another, have a watered-down version of this going on. And so the work of God is to just change that, to expand that, and for us to understand love through the lens of Jesus. The love that is needed to heal the whole world has already been given and so when it starts to sink in that Jesus' love is really like this, it changes us. Henry Nouwen puts it this way, to love is to think, speak, and act according to the spiritual knowledge that we are infinitely loved by God. But in this sermon itself, I've already used the word a ton, haven't I? And so there again, it has the potential to lose its power. How do we keep, how do we keep the spark how do we keep the power of the word? How do we let it resonate in us every time that we say it? Well, of course, we return to the source again and again. It's not like drumming up all our willpower. It is like letting go and being loved. As God gives us the greatest gift of love. What he does is be, helps us begin to see the world differently. To, to, to see the world as it was intended to be all along. The metaphor that we thought of as we planned the, the message is actually from going uh, where we see the world black and white to, beginning, to begin to be able to see in color. And that got us, th uh, uh, Laura and I, thinking about uh, people who are colorblind. We know so we have some friends who are colorblind. And then those, those videos that maybe you've seen of people who have maybe been colorblind their whole life, and then someone gives them a pair of glasses that helps them see color. What's so striking about those videos, which we're going to watch about a minute of one of those here in just a second, is maybe trying to imagine what it's like to have heard the word color and heard other people describe it for so long but never have the experience yourself. And maybe to go through your whole life and then to, to suddenly see it for the first time. 
what would that be like? Well, um, love is kind of like that, right? We maybe hear other people describe it, but until it hits, until we know, we may have used the word but not known fully what it meant. What would it feel like to understand that for the first time? Well, this video, I think, gives us a little bit of that picture. Let's watch. This man is 66. Break it. And his family gave him these glasses on his 66th birthday as they're gathered around. And what happens is you kind of, you will tell, it kind of goes from this moment of just getting something out of a box for the first 27 seconds or so. And then uh, in about 10 seconds, in about second 28, the emotional tenor of the whole thing instantly changes. And it came with balloons and all that. I can put these on. This rocket was supposed to be. It'll correct your eyes so that you'll see how. clear that's what we mean <laughs> when we use the word love and our hope is that somehow in God's work in us each one of us will begin to feel that when we hear it Jesus is like those glasses he helped us see the world for the first time as if for the first time you may have caught it uh, that gentleman said is that how things are supposed to be he didn't know. And neither do we, but by the grace of God, there is one who has come to show us, to put on a pair of glasses to help us see the full color of the world, and to imagine a world where our pecking orders and our status and our striving are replaced by something else, that our will, willpower is, is generated uh, in one direction, which is to put me in the place where I know that I am loved and then transformed by that love so that status is replaced by selfless service and where power doesn't matter because we're all sister and brother, where competition is trumped by a quest for peace and wholeness, where patience and kindness and goodness are a part of our lives as if they were the fruit of God's spirit in us and where love never loses its power, where the word never loses its power, but only grows as we use it as we speak it, as we tell the story of it, the understanding of it only grows in each of us. Let's pray together. God, we pray that we would know that we are loved and that we would more and more understand the depth of that love the more we talk about it, the more the word is used. 
thank you does not seem enough when we think about Jesus. Amazing grace doesn't seem quite enough as we think about his life and death and resurrection. But we do pray that he will help us see the world that you created, the world that you intended. And that that love would change us from the inside out. Today we offer ourselves as disciples of Jesus. Those who follow in his way. Those who love by being loved. Serving the one who came out of the infinite love of the Father to show that love to us and to the world. We are humbled by his presence among us. We're humbled by his sacrifice. We're humbled by his vision that the love of God would be embodied in people like us and then offered out to the world in the overflow. May it be so in the people at Broadway, in each of us individually, and help this word to find its power in each one today. We pray it in Jesus' name.